last week we learned uh, about the comparison between Socrates and evangelism. And as my dear mother said, Travis, I hated that part, <laughs> Socrates. I realized that uh, the part uh, about Socrates may have been uh, felt a bit tedious. Um, I understand that. But what, what he did, what I, and I want to emphasize this, what Dr. Bonson did by, by making that comparison for us that we reviewed, he's enabled us to see uh, in that comparison how modern evangelical ap apologetics like Roman Catholic apologetics really has more in common with Socrates than with Christ, than with Paul, than with Augustine, than with... Protestant Reformation theology and what we're teaching right now. So it start, all this started with Socrates' view of man's reason, which is a view shared by Roman Catholicism and by Arminian forms of evangelicalism. Now I just want to ask if, see who is paying attention, Alyssa, um, would anyone care to explain the, really the unbiblical view of reason that we're talking about? What? What is it that we're concerned with with Socrates' view of reason, which is practiced by a lot of apologists? Scott? Reason is the most godlike uh, characteristic of man. And that you can basically appeal to reason with anybody, and they can somehow attain to ideal reason. Excellent. Excellently stated, like a man who studied philosophy at some point in his life. No, you ha I know, and I know he has. <laughs> but thank you. That's that's very well stated. Yeah. So this uh, this view of reason that Socrates had that the most godlike, divine part of a man is his reason, and so the the key with anybody is to basically help them to overcome any obstacles that they have to realizing their full potential, which is to know themselves <laughs> and to, to really auger in, understand and use that reason, which is autonomous, which is neutral, unbiased, unprejudiced and all the rest. OK, so he had a high view of human reason. Um, he, uh, he believed that, as Scott said, reason is man's connection with the divine, and so to know oneself is the closest connection man can make with the divine. That same view, uh, this high view of man and his capabilities, the capacity and ability of man's reason is shared by a man named Pelagius. Anybody know the name Pelagius from yes. church history? Okay. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Good. Bad guy. You're on the right side. So he's a fourth century British uh, theologian. And Pelagius, he looked around in society and he saw what we see. He saw corruption in the society around him. And he actually hated what he saw. He hated the moral laxity in, in uh, the society around him. And he blamed it all on Augustine's doctrine of divine grace. He said, see, you talk about all, it's all of grace. Therefore, man has no responsibility, so it's your fault. And he hated the doctrine of absolute divine grace. So he, he, uh, he believed that emphasis on grace abrogated the responsibility that man had for his own obedience. So Pelagius set about to uh, work out his doctrines theologically. He denied original sin. He denied imputation of you know, Adam's sin to us and, and all of that in Romans 5. Um, he taught instead that every man possessed, listen for Socrates, possessed the innate ability to obey the law of God, uh, unaided by divine grace. 
He also held a very high view of human capability, human free will, uh, the ability of unaided human reason to lead man to God, to rationality, and to make good, godly, moral decisions. That's Pelagius. And though he was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Carthage in 418, his doctrines continued to be very, very popular. After all, this is the way natural man thinks about himself, right? Very high view of self. Uh, there was a strong uh, current, even after his condemnation, uh, being branded as a heretic, condemned as a heretic, it's a very strong current, not maybe of, of full bore, uh, you know, undiluted Pelagianism, but definitely a semi-Pelagianism continued to run through the Roman Catholic Church and all the way through the Reformation, all the way up to modern times. The same semi-Pelagianism is also the theoretical foundation for Arminianism, okay? So, in other words, it's the semi-Pelagianism. Man has, he's not completely destroyed by sin, as the Bible teaches. He's mostly destroyed by sin, but God gives him a, a prevenient grace, which kind of overcomes some of that and then enables him to participate in his own salvation. So, for salvation to occur, God has to do his part, you know, he, he you know, sends Christ to die on the cross, and he holds out this gift to you, and all you need to do is what? Take it. Take, it. Take the gift. Take the gift. So that's your part. So God does his part, but salvation will not happen unless man does his part as well. After all, God would never violate the free will of man, and so... That's, that's, uh, that's Arminianism, that's semi-Pelagianism. Another term for that is synergism, as opposed to monergism. Monergism is one actor, God, His grace, doing all the work, taking the initiative, saving, and all the rest. Uh, synergism means both God and man participating to effect salvation. So that's, that's, uh, the, that's semi-Pelagianism. So you see the same thread, though, starting with Socrates, Moving through Roman Catholicism and all the way to Armenian evangelicalism today, they have an exalted and unbiblical view of the ability and the potential of man's reason. They all treat man's reason as neutral, um, as needing only education, the right information to make good rational choices. They all treat man as autonomous. Autonomous, you may remember, is the word self-law, self-rule. So they treat man as autonomous. He's able to rule himself, and they cater to the exercise of man's own free will. He's accountable to nothing more than his own reason. That's the way many approach the task of apologetics. So Socrates, Roman Catholic apologist, modern evangelical apologist, many of whom, but not all, are influenced by Arminian thought, but they put a high premium on the ability of human reason to make good judgment about spiritual matters. Um, they follow the same apologetic approach that Dr. Bonson was able to identify in Socrates, his apology before the Athenians. So what were those things? There were five. I won't ask you to recite them, but there was an appeal to the facts. That was number one. You know, man's reason, all he needs is good information, so let me give him good information, he'll come to good judgments. So appeal to the facts, brute facts are then interpreted without any prejudice or bias on the part of the unbeliever. Number two, appeal to logic. There's a, a logical consistency and internal coherence that the, the unbelieving reason can test on his own. That's, that's Socrates, that's Roman Catholic and Evangelical apologetics. 
Appeal to number three, appeal to benefit. That is the beneficial consequences of the worldview, of the belief system. Number four, appeal to virtue, uh, the personal integrity and virtue that's modeled and advocated by uh, the belief system. And then number five, appeal to inner guidance, uh, the fact of divine illumination and guidance that is kind of like a trump card over uh, all the others. Now, let me ask, on those five points, appeal to facts, logic, benefit, virtue, and inner guidance, are all those things true or false about Christianity? They're, they're all true. Yeah, they're all true. All true. Yeah, all true. Christianity is the one worldview and the only worldview, I'll hasten to add, that number one, deals honestly with all the facts. Number two, is internally logically consistent with itself. Number three, provides the most beneficial consequences for the good of all mankind. Number four, it promotes the highest degree of virtue and integrity practiced first and perfectly by its founder, Jesus Christ. And number five, it's the worldview that's revealed by God to individuals by the regenerating, illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's true. All those points are true of Christianity. Actually not true of Socrates and his belief system or any other worldview, right? So... The Bible even tells us that God has provided us with sound reasoning and, and with evidences that point to his existence. God is known through what's made. He's provided himself with a, a continual and universal witness of a general revelation. We saw that last time in uh, Psalm 19. General revelation is continually speaking, though speaking without words, right? Um, He's also revealed himself, God has, in special revelation, in Scripture, through the written Word of God in the Old and New Testaments. The resurrection itself, as I think has been demonstrated so well by Josh McDowell and uh, Frank Morrison and many others, the resurrection is attested, as Acts 1-3 says, by many infallible proofs. So, there is evidence for Christianity. There, is, there are those five points, the facts, the logical consistency, benefic benefit, uh, virtue, divine illumination. So, if all that is true, and it is true, um, what's wrong with making our defense of Christianity by presenting those five lines of reasoning for consideration by an unbeliever? What's wrong with that? Yeah, let's start with you, Leanna, Annie. It's, it's not enough. Um, it's, faith is a primary, and with that, it, it puts it as a secondary. Okay, it's not enough, and you said faith is primary. Why, just let me press you a little bit. I agree with you. So why is faith primary? What, what makes it essential? Why did you have to ask me that? <laughs> I'm asking the questions here. Today. No, that's that's fine. Um, but yeah, faith is primary, so we'll just leave your you know, that answer stands on its own. <laughs> yes. Um, Lori. I think the I think the big thing is that the way Socrates put it, it all depends on man, and they're assuming that man is able to to make all those right choices. And he can't without God changing his heart. Okay, he back to what Annie just said. Faith is paramount. So unless God causes him to be born again, 
what's he going to do with those five lines of reasoning? He'll turn them against us. Turn them against yeah. us. Yeah. So, so the, he he will use those same things. Like you, you had some really good examples about. Uh, yeah, well, suppose he says that, you say this, and he says, you know, brings it up, and it's just a never-ending argument yeah. on intellectual and reason and things like that, but <laughs> he has to change his worldview. But you have to point out the inadequacies of his worldview right. at the beginning. Right, there you go. That's exactly right. He challenges assumptions. Challenges assumptions, challenges presuppositions. That's right. So you're, you're anticipating where we're heading. Um, but but uh, and we're actually going to do a little exercise here with regard to the traditional proofs for the existence of God and see how that works. Uh, did I see your hand, Wayne? Yeah, most of it's already been stated. Okay. Stated. Uh, it, it really is about the foundation that you start with. If, if you're starting with anything other than the Word of God as the foundation, right? You're you're in a circular argument that's going to get turned away at, at, at every at every place, right? The, the Bible tells us that, um, you know, the unregenerate man hates the things of God, and, and you're not going to overcome that yourself. It's going to be the spirit that has to overcome that. Right. So the Word of God is what we call a self-attesting authority. That is to say that outside the Word of God, what authority would there be to validate the Word of God as reliable and trustworthy? Because anything that would be outside the Bible that would confirm to you and tell you this is trustworthy, trust it, that becomes the authority, right? So the Word of God is its own authority. Why? Because it comes from God, the pre-existent one, the self-sufficient one. It's His Word. And so if His Word comes out of His mouth and goes onto a page, we take it for what it says. That needs to be revealed to us. Our eyes need to be open to that fact. But it is a self-attesting authority. So that's, that's the quandary we're in with an unbeliever because it sounds like circular reasoning. The problem is we're not allowed to go outside of that self-attesting authority and say, well, let me appeal to evidences that are more authoritative than the Bible to show you that the Bible is reliable. We're not allowed to do that. That's not faithful. I think I saw, did I see another hand over here? No, I think I saw one. Okay, I saw some movement. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the reason we can't use we can, the reason that man's reason can't get him to truth is because he's dead, and so you have to deal with that deadness before you can deal with his reason, and the deadness is really his rebellion against God. So you right. have to deal with his worldview and show its inadequacy, show that he's really standing on a different authority than God, which is the only real one. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so to just take your analogy further, he's dead. His deadness is the problem. And until his deadness is overcome, he will not, uh, he will not see your lines of reasoning as valid and, and the good evidences that they are. We, we use evidences. We use arguments for the existence of God and all the rest. It's just the right ordering of those evidences and those arguments. Okay, so we do use them. We just uh, we just have to realize who we're talking to. And when you use the analogy of it, uh, the Bible speaks of men as dead into trespasses and sins. That person who you're talking to may look like another human being, but they're really a zombie. They're really the walking dead. 
And what you need to do, what this whole apologetic task is, it's kind of what Chuck was saying, but this is in more vivid terms. You're basically holding up a mirror and showing them what they really look like. You are a zombie. Look at you. Your jaw's coming apart. You know, there's flesh peeling and falling off. You can't make sense of anything. Uh, even though we hit you with hammers and stuff, you keep coming after us. You're a zombie. So he has to be shown that his reasoning doesn't work, his thinking doesn't work, all the rest. Is that a bad analogy? Sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. We were once the same, dead in trespasses and sins. That's right. So, so because believers are sinfully predisposed to reject the evidence that God has plainly given them, in fact, uh, you know, they, they can't do otherwise. That's why they don't follow our lines of reasoning. We visited this verse before, Romans 8, 7. That the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and God's law indeed it cannot. And that's that's where we want to launch off uh, this evening, uh, from that concept, that verse. Turning your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians one eighteen. And we want, what we want to do uh, right now in this first section is look at the antithesis that exists between the believing and the unbelieving use of reason. So I'm going to give you a little outline uh, we'll be using tonight, if that is going to help you follow the, the, the flow of thought, the argument. First of all, we need to understand the unbelieving mind. Second, we need to understand the apologetic task. And third, we need to learn a biblically faithful apologetic method. And I can tell you that we're only going to dip our toes into the third point because this is a part one tonight. Part two will be October 22nd, I think I said. Yep. So, first of all, the antithesis of the unbelieving mind. This is what we need to see. Historically, evangelicals have been wrongly appealing, as we said, to the unregenerate reason of the unbeliever. Uh, we've treated the unbeliever as if that person were an unbiased, unprejudiced arbiter of the facts. They're not. We've tried to, to walk that person through the best evidences, the best arguments, leading the unbeliever along a very valid path of reasoning, and we're hoping to get that person to the conclusion that he has to repent and put his faith in Jesus Christ. I have done this. I have, I have done this to, to much frustration, and I know many of you have too. But all those evidences that we present and all those arguments, the valid arguments that we make, they carry weight with us. Why? Because we believe, <laughs> because we're believers. Until that unbeliever leaves his side, which is at enmity and hostility with God, and joins the believing camp, he's not going to see it uh, the Bible's way. They're not going to see the evidences. They're not going to hear the arguments like we do. He's not going to be compelled. And since we've done nothing to ruffle his feathers, to shake his confidence in his autonomous use of reason, to hold up the mirror and say, hey, you're a zombie. Look at you. He's going to just continue to be hardened in his unbelief. So in Romans or in Romans, in first Corinthians one and two, Paul makes and expands on the same point that he made briefly in Romans eight, seven. He writes in first Corinthians one eighteen. For the word of cross of the cross is foolishness. That is the word moria. That's moronic. It's moronic. 
to the unbeliever, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That not only states the antithesis that exists between believers and unbelievers, putting one group in one camp and the other group in the other camp, but it also shows the diametrically opposite conclusions that they come to in response to evidence for God, evidence for the gospel. Okay? Last week, um, I think Chuck was raising this. I used an illustration to, uh, of this by unpacking how we reason uh, about how the resurrection, the empty tomb, points to the trustworthiness of the Bible, Scripture, for us. Remember that? We, we noted how the unbeliever would not find our argument compelling, but would rather eventually scoff at it, just as it says here, he calls it foolishness. And I'd like to illustrate that once again by doing this exercise. And, and in, in cases the first time you've heard some of these traditional proofs for, the, for, for Christian theism, uh, for the, uh, God's existence, um, maybe this will be educational for some. But I want to introduce these proofs, interact with them a little bit um, for, for traditional proofs. Can anybody name them or name any of them? Yeah, it's proofs for the existence of God. Yeah. Anselms and uh, Thomas Aquinas. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, Anselm and Thomas Aquinas, two main figures. You, can you name? Uh, uh, Aquinas seemed to be involved in. Uh, there are two. Anselm was involved in one. Which one is cosmic? Yeah, and the other, the other category is uh, from right. first cause or from uh, yeah, yeah. evidence or evidentiary. Yeah, so you're talking about uh, the cosmological, teleological, the, um, the moral argument for the existence of God, and then the uh, ontological. And that's, that's a doozy. <laughs> that's, that's Anselm for you right there. So, um, so the cosmological argument, that for the existence of God, this is the argument from creation. The word cosmos is talking about the created order of the universe. This is Plato, Aristotle, and then Aquinas uh, picked up on them. So it says basically this, since every effect has a cause, the universe must have a sufficient cause because an infinite chain of finite causes is impossible. Okay, therefore there must be a first cause which is uncaused, that is God. Right? Pretty simple argument. For me and you, we're like, right on. Makes sense. I want to ask you to do something a little devilish tonight. I want to see if you can play the devil's advocate and, thinking like an unbeliever, poke holes in that argument. Why does that not work to convince you to become a Christian? Yes? Well, the big one I hear a lot is that given enough time, any series of events will happen. Okay, but this isn't talking about a series of events necessarily. It's talking about um, basically every effect having a cause. Right. So do we have an infinite regress? So the, the, uh, <clears throat> the cause would be uh, time itself, actually. Okay, time. The movement, motion between two fixed points. That can provide a sufficient reason for first cause. Okay, so who else would like to, to say, based on that argument right there, I'm not compelled to become a Christian, Josh? The one that I always hear is, well, then what caused God? And therefore, they think that that means that it's the same. Okay, what caused God? There's, that's, that's a good one. I've heard that before, too. Who else? Yeah. The one you'll always hear is, oh, no, that, that, that's not right. Everybody knows the Big Bang Theory is the way it is. 
Then we have the Big Bang, and then we have the universe. Okay, so that would that would take into that would basically assume the unbelievers making the argument that I reject the the eternality of a being and I accept the eternality of matter, which has no intellect, no intelligence. So it's it's ludicrous, but people start saying that all the time these days. Basically, if you press the rationality of an unbeliever, it will eventually squeeze out to irrationality. That's what happens every single time. So let me let me tell you, here's the problem. What if the first cause isn't God? What if the first cause is a bunch of gods or a Klingon? Or an intelligent pool of goo. What if that's the first cause? There's nothing, there's nothing in that argument that points necessarily to the Christian God of the Bible. Okay? It's just a, a proof for theism, not Christian theism. Here's the second one, teleological argument from design. What's that? Say that again. Tele, teleological, T E. L, E, O, and then logical. Teleological. This is the argument from design. This is teleos, which is a Greek word for end or purpose. This is Aquinas and then uh, Paley later on, William Paley. So since we can observe a hierarchy of designs from simple to complex, there must be a master designer and there must be an intelligence that is God. Uh, William Paley made the famous analogy, you probably heard it before, of, of walking through a field and finding a, an abandoned watch, picks up the watch, never seen the watch before, but he can kind of pull it off and look at all the, the gears and springs and everything and realize that all those different pieces, simple pieces, but all put together in a whole for a purpose, for it has a design. So the watchmaker, or the, the watch implies a watchmaker, right? So, again, how can an unbeliever poke holes in the teleological proof? It doesn't end up in the Christian God again. Okay, same, same critique as the previous one. It doesn't end up in the, in, in the Christian God. And adding the fact that things only appear purposeful to us, but maybe they're not. Maybe it's all just random chance, and we, we, we're, we're kind of, because we're, just of limited intelligence, it appears to us as purpose. Um, maybe natural selection has produced whatever we see. Okay, so again, there's some ways that they can poke holes. Third one, moral argument. Moral argument for moral law, Immanuel uh, Kant. There's a universal moral law which requires a universal lawgiver who is absolutely good. Since the standard is good, so must the standard setter, the one who sets the standard. So the deity with the greatest good is God. Again, as a Christian, I find that compelling, and I actually use that moral argumentation a lot. But what is, why does that not compel an unbeliever to become a Christian? Uh, Scott and then Wayne. Am I wrong in thinking that C.S. Lewis argued that in their Christianity also? Uh-huh. No, you're not wrong. <laughs> if I remember correctly, he did as well. C.S. Lewis did a masterful job in unpacking a lot of these things. Uh, but there was still a, 
a latent Arminianism in his thinking as well. And there's that whole problem with the ransom theory of the atonement. Bad, bad theology, C.S. Lewis. So <laughs> don't follow to C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I, I believe he's a believer, but I think there was some argumentation that was more philosophical than Christian. So got to be careful sometimes there. But Wayne? When you apply the universal moral law, people uh, also point out the wars and, you know, mm -hmm. that bad things happen to good people and say, if all of us had the universal moral law, why is there murder? Why is there war? Why is, you know, insert bad thinking? Exactly. So this, this comes back to the relativizing spirit of our age. Um, and, and again, like, like I told you about that English teacher, very different from Chuck Fisher, uh, who said the Bible is a bloody book. You know, he would go back in the Old Testament and say, look at all the wars that God not only condoned, but commanded. He commanded genocide of entire peoples. What are you going to do with that? So is he moral? And some people say, no, God is the most immoral being in the universe. What happens to your moral argument now, you know? So again, it's just them poking holes. It's not valid, but... Well, I've had a guy say that there um, isn't even really a universal law, that we are all kind of our own moral standard, right. and um, there are, you know, obviously... <clears throat> yeah, so... Some measure of acceptable... So again, back to subjectivism, back to relativism, that we are all our own standards. It's back to, you know, my own autonomous reason, and my own autonomous thinking, accountability to self. I am my own morality. Why does that break down? Because nothing is wrong. Nothing would legitimately be wrong, right? Uh, Scotty. Basically, if they don't believe in a God, then there's no, there, there is no standard of law. There's no law. That exactly. So that goes back to the other things that we were talking about previous. Mm -hmm. It like they don't they already don't believe in a God, so there's no law. Yeah, I think it was Dostoevsky that said, if as soon as man, as soon as you take out God, then it's basically a free-for-all mor mor uh, morally. That's exactly right. So, last one. Here's, the, here's our beloved Anselm. The ontological uh, argument for the existence of God, the proof. It's the argument from being. That's what ontology is, is the study of being. Um, here's, the, here's the statement from Anselm. God is that of which nothing greater can be thought. That's his proof. Good, huh? God is that of which nothing greater can be thought. And so since, he, since it is greater to exist in reality than only in the mind, God therefore must exist as a necessary being. Follow that? <laughs> so here's, here's premise A. Premise A, God is, by definition, a necessary being. <laughs> premise B, existence is logically necessary to the concept of a necessary being. Conclusion, therefore, since God is a necessary being, God must exist. Now, I can't deny the logic of it, but what's, if you're an unbeliever, what, do you, what is the weakness here? First, I can't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> so, Wayne. Our reliance on matter, right? It's, it's a lot easier for people to believe cellular 
weirdness in the gene pool than it is for them to believe something they can't observe. So ontological argument without uh, evidentiary basis, right? Okay. Our society just dismisses out. Okay, good. Yeah, that's that's well stated. So because of the materialist bias uh, in this in, in our land in the Western world, uh, we tend to reject anything that doesn't have uh, you know evidentiary basis or it doesn't there's no stuff to point to, right? So if it's here in the mind, it therefore doesn't really exist. And there's some reason to understand that, right? I mean, I can think of a unicorn. Does that mean unicorns exist? I can think of pink flying elephants. I can think of, you know, a land where there's nothing but Doritos. <laughs> I, can, I do think of that. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that land exists. That doesn't mean any of that exists. Josh? Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's also the problem that you said with the first two, that it, it doesn't prove a Christian God. Because I actually had a professor in college who converted from an atheist to a theist because of the ontological argument. And he made me realize that there had to be a God. When, I mean, during the year, he went from starting with as an atheist to a theist, but still rejected everything about Christianity because it just proves that there's something out there. That exactly, exactly. And then the unbelieving mind may be, may be compelled. It, it, it's, it, we tend to think if they move from atheism to theism, that that's a step forward. No, it's just a lateral step. They've just moved from side to side because there's a whole country called India filled with theists. They're no closer to God than the most radical atheist of our time. Okay? So that's, thank you for saying that. Um, so I read about these uh, four, four uh, theistic proofs. Uh, from an advocate who he's, he advocates using these four proofs of God's existence in apologetics, but he makes this honest acknowledgement. Here's what he says. The four classical arguments or proofs for God's existence are not considered con conclusive or compelling and should not be seen as definitive statements underpinning theistic belief. End quote. It's interesting he says that. He doesn't give the reasons why they are not convincing and compelling, and I, I wish he would have gone further, but he, he didn't. He just said that. He quotes Wayne Grudem, who also says, rightly, that these proofs cannot bring unbelievers to a saving faith, for that comes about through belief in the testimony of Scripture. Also true. After admitting that, the writer, though, rather surprisingly says these four proofs of God's existence, quote, might be seen as stepping stones or building blocks towards proof of God's existence, end quote. And what we're saying is, no, they're not. And they cannot be used as stepping stones or building blocks moving from atheism to theism, from theism to monotheism, from monotheism to Christian monotheism, from Christian monotheism to the crisis point of the great leap of faith, Soren Kierkegaard, where the unbeliever embraces Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord by diving into the unknown. That is not what we're doing here. His reason is faulty. So these are not building blocks, they're not stepping stones. Did you have your hand raised? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I agree with what you're saying there. I just, it seems to me that some of these arguments can be used to crack their worldview, which holds no, no water. It doesn't prove the Bible, it doesn't do any of that. But it also says that the, your concept, whatever you imagine, it has no basis either. And that to, isn't 
doesn't win them to Christ. It just seems to get them to where they have to say, you can't okay. sit there smugly satisfied. You're, you're putting your finger exactly on the presuppositional method. That that's exactly what we're doing. And we're taking these theistic proofs even and using them in a different way. Instead of a direct evidence, a line of reasoning to put before the unbeliever and say, hey, consider this and wouldn't you like to become a Christian? We're actually going to use, say, the moral argument. And we're going to say we're going to turn his unbelieving worldview in on itself and say, explain to me. I understand where my moral sense comes from and why I do what I do and don't do what I don't do. There's a theology that explains all that. There's a God who commands my ethics. What about you? Where does yours come from? So you're turning that moral argument and you're now turning the gun. He's turning the guns on himself. And he's basically going to, in a whole number of ways, unravel on you. Because he cannot provide a sufficient reason, uh, preconditions for the intelligibility of his thought. He can't. Uh, let's go to Christy first. Um, but even that won't matter. I mean, I mean, I, my dad is an example of that. I took him to hear Ravi Zacharias one time. Ravi Zacharias unraveled all of the, you know, <laughs> all of the put, put holes in his argument. And he's sitting there going, we, had, we talked about it afterwards. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Doesn't phase him. Doesn't, he has no, right. he's still totally blind. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the only thing that really will save him are not necessarily apologetic arguments or the indirect argument or the transcendental argument for the existence of God or, or trying to help deconstruct his worldview. That's not going to save him. What's going to save him is the gospel. So we have to be about the work of the gospel and giving them law and gospel, law and gospel. That's why we did that whole video series, right? Because we need to get them the truth. That's going to save them. But this on this on its own. What, but what are we doing here with apologetics? Defending. Defending the faith. We're giving a reason for the hope that's within us. We're responding to their arguments. We're responding to their criticisms. We're we're giving them a defense of the Christian worldview. That's what we're doing. And we're also at the same time. This is both defensive and offensive. We're we're showing them that their own worldview doesn't have the preconditions of intelligibility. And so we want them, they have this built this huge edifice of confidence in their unbelief. We want to destroy it. We want to poke holes in it. We want to silence their mouth and cause them to say, well, I guess I just have to embrace irrationality then because I love my sin too much. That's what we want to bring them to. And I, it's, it's really tragic, you know, when, when you watch, uh, you know, we've, my family, my wife and I, I've, I've talked with people, we've had these conversations with unbelievers where you do this, you do this very thing and you show them they, they do not have a reason for their, whether it's metaphysics, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, they don't have a reason for their worldview. You unravel it. And you, they, at the end of the day, they still want to hold on to their unbelief because they love their sin. So it's only going to be the regenerating grace of God that comes by means of the gospel and the Holy Spirit applying that gospel to their hearts that's going to awaken them to faith, repentance, all that. So again, understand this portion of what we're talking about. We've talked about evangelism. We're talking about apologetics now, which is a different task. It's all blended together in the practice of it, right? But we're trying to make a distinction right now so we can clarify what we're doing, what we're not doing. Um, I admittedly come from a 
lazy generation. I'm a millennial. We kind of, I, we suck. Uh, I, 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 think, I think you're built on a whole genera a number of generations of people who likewise are not Either up to way, snuff. We're, like, so. we're the most entitled generation for many years or whatever. But don't give yourself so much credit there, Maureen. What are you yeah. Give them all the credit? No, no go ahead. Any, anyway, I don't know that I've really encountered anybody who's challenged it. I've just gotten a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church three times a year. I'm... I'm a good person. They, it seems to be they're too lazy to defend why, why it's never, oh, I'm an atheist, or mm -hmm. oh, I believe in evolution or Big Bang or whatever. It's, oh, I want to continue on my sin and not be challenged by it. Right. So I'm just going to toe the line and say that I do it, and then maybe you won't have the guts to challenge me on my life. Right. Right. And so what we do is we have the guts to challenge them on their life. Right. And we, we press. We press a bit. It is it is a tough time. And, you know, and then admittedly, it's um, there is a there is a, a very thick wall of agnosticism where people just say, well, I don't know. And I really don't care to know. Well, why do you why do you live this way? Don't know. Just like it. As you try to press in, it's like it's like trying to tack jello to the wall, you know? It just keeps on whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like, would you have a spine already? No, they won't have a spine. They won't have a spine until they get conquered by a foreign power and all of a sudden realize, oh beliefs matter. Okay? So just wait for that and then we'll <laughs> but in the meantime press them keep trying to tack that jello to the wall okay uh we need to move on but bill one more comment yeah i just just wanted to maybe tack in just a little bit on this millennial thing i work with a bunch of really smart guys that think exactly like the millennials and the fatal flaw in all this for the unbeliever is is is, is, is they believe they're going to wake up tomorrow morning yeah that's right they believe they're going to wake up tomorrow morning. And, and until that mind is pricked with the idea that I might not wake up tomorrow morning, then, then, then we're going back to what we've been talking about, that, 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 that faith is going to have to be the dominant factor that allows us to drive reason from faith. They're not, they're not opposite of each other. They're, they're, they're they work in harmony. They're in the same mm -hmm. the same level. Yeah, that's right. We're very well said. And that really does go back right back to that whole method we were talking about with regard to any with regard to evangelism, that whole law and gospel. What's the problem? Why do we bring up the law? Because we want their conscience to be convicted and to know that they're going to have to give an account. They are not accountable to themselves they're accountable to God. When they understand that they are accountable to God and heaven and hell is in the balance. That's that's what they have to be gripped by. And as Bill says, you know, we just live in a time, modernistic age, where science solves everything. There's a pill for everything. There's a there's a, a show for everything. You know, if I feel bad, there's a drink for everything. There's a drug for everything. There's an entertainment for everything. So yeah, people are pretty self-satisfied, and they're sleepwalking. And so it takes it takes a good illness to wake them up, or a car accident to wake them up, or the death of a loved one to wake them up. So you don't want to pray for terrible things to happen, but you want to pray. I pray. I've got people in my life like you do um, that, uh, you know, God will be will wake them up and use the most gracious means possible. I, I want him, I want them to wake them up, but do it gently. I don't I don't want people to have to lose limbs or have cancer or something like that. So 
That's the way you can pray and look for opportunities. Okay, I see that hand, but I need to, I'm just, I'm, the t- clock is killing me. It's just killing me. So, um, can you do that? Is it that simple? I, th- I think the, uh, I think there'd be kids that would uh, come and have my head. I think they want dinner and stuff. Okay, so where are we? Um, Okay, an, an antithesis, I'm trying to say, between believers and unbelievers, uh, between the, the believing use of reason, the unbelieving user, use of reason, we, we come to diametrically opposite conclusions in response to evidence for God, uh, for his gospel. Again, we quoted Romans, or I keep saying Romans, we're going to get to Romans, but 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness. It's moronic to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So to us who are being saved as first Corinthians, if you're in first Corinthians, look at chapter one, verse 30. The, if, if, uh, if for, for us who are being saved, the plan of divine salvation is nothing short of the very wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, redemption. We marvel at this plan of God. We marvel at what he's done and how he's done it. But for the unbeliever, because they remain at enmity with God, they remain fixed in their rebellion uh, because their foolish hearts are darkened. They're going to be unmoved by evidences. Their reason uh, just remains in service to their own rebellion against God. Why is that? Are they being honest when we present them with good evidences and sound arguments? What do you think? Are they being honest or not? According to their nature. <laughs> yes and no, isn't it? It's a bit of both. On the one hand... Unbelievers cannot understand what we're telling them, okay? We're, you know, I've, I've used the analogy before with one of my kids who was not yet a Christian, trying to explain the gospel, explain how marvelous this is, this wisdom from God, and, and you know, this, this child of mine said, I'm just not seeing it. I can't see it. And I, I said, it's kind of like I'm looking at a beautiful sunset over the mountains, and I, I'm, I'm trying to describe to you this beauty, and you can only see it in black and white. And I said, what strike that? You have no eyes. You can't even see anything. That's the problem. And I'm trying to explain this to you who've never seen anything in your life. Lights have to be turned on. So they can't understand what we're telling them because the truths of, what we, uh, of which we speak are revealed to a regenerate believing heart. Look over at 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says there, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That's again the same word, foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Okay? They need to be not a natural man, but a spiritual man. They need to be born again. So, on the one hand, unbelievers are honestly perplexed uh, by us and how we find certain evidences so compelling, why certain arguments seem so reasonable to us, why God seems so magnificent and glorious to us. They find them moronic. They find this whole thing ludicrous. Okay? On the other hand, are they being really honest? No. Unbelievers are a bit squirrely about their predisposition toward sinful or toward God and toward his truth. They prefer unbelief. They prefer their unbelieving worldview because they love their sin. Okay? Turn to Romans 118. 
Romans 1.18. And while you're turning there, uh, I'll just remind you of what Jesus said, John 3.19. He said, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Exactly, exactly. Deep down inside, in their heart of hearts, where no one but God can see, unbelievers are quite happy and content in their sin. They maintain a firm grasp on their unbelief because to let it go means they've got to reckon with God. Mm -hmm. So they hold on, they clutch firmly, tightly on that unbelief because they're born with that predisposition against God, against his truth. They're bent toward rebellion and all of that in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Everything in their world, including they themselves, their, the law of God written on their hearts, their consciences, everything in their world, that in all their awareness points in exactly the opposite direction, that God is. Look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. Okay? So the truth about God, according to Romans 1, is plain. It's clearly perceived, but instead of bowing the knee in repentance and faith, instead of bowing humbly before God in worship and gratitude, how does the unbeliever respond? Holding down the truth. It doesn't, it's not real. It doesn't exist. I don't see that. That's how they respond. So are they honest? Well, yeah, perplexed, sure, but not really honest. They know this God whom they're rejecting, and that's why I say there are no true atheists. They're just, they're just those who are rebellious Christian theists who keep on holding down the truth that they know. And the atheist is the one who's been able to build on top of that all these arguments to the contrary and uses reason in a rebellious and unbelieving way. So the arguments, <clears throat> um, or general, I should say general revelation, which is what Romans 1 is talking about. General revelation <clears throat> serves the interests of the gospel uh, by rendering the unbeliever without excuse. That's what it says there, so they're, they're without excuse. Un unbelieving, or uh, I should say uh, general revelation, you, know, you understand what I'm saying when I say general revelation, right? Creation, conscience, everything that God has made. Psalm 19, 1-6, that's all general revelation. Um, all of that in contrast to Roman Catholic theology that says that's natural theology that the unbelieving reason can then build on and reason himself to God, it's not true. What Psalm 19, 1 to 6 says, what Romans 1 says, is a general revelation is not natural theology. It is revelation of God in a general universal way. And all that that does is render the unbeliever without excuse. That's its purpose is to drive the unbeliever to Christ, okay? So, same evidences that deepen our convictions about Christian truth, that unbeliever is never satisfied with those evidences. Arguments that are compelling to us, the unbeliever finds wholly uncompelling, full of holes, because his heart is re unregenerate, his reason remains unregenerate, and he will not be convinced. The unbeliever's reason 
in, in, informed by his unbelief. He assumes himself as his authority. He remains fixed in his rebellion against God. And so the unbeliever's reason will always and only carry him away from God rather than toward him. That's why we talked about going from atheism to theism. It's not a forward move. It's a lateral move. Sometimes it can even be a backward move, <laughs> you know, because he's just now he thinks he's really found it. He's really hardened his heart even further. So he will always reason in rebellion, no matter what evidences you put in front of him. So until an unbeliever is born again by divine grace, his reason is restored to him because it's anchored into the bedrock of Christian truth and faith. He'll never reason his way to Christ. So question I ended with last time, then are we at an impasse? Are we, are we able to engage an unbeliever in apologetics, making a defense for the faith that engages an unbeliever's reason? Or must we bypass the unbeliever's reason and just preach the gospel, refuse to dialogue, refuse to try to persuade? What are your thoughts about that? Scott. It feels like all I have is to pray for them more than anything else, that no argument is going to get through. I have to pray that God regenerate them. Okay. Or call them first. But that's just doing that and not presenting the gospel is not obeying God's commands. So I have to do both. But it feels like the most effective thing I can do is pray. Yeah. We, um, you know, in any of this, we face an absolutely impossible task. You know, if it's up to us to convert the heart, it ain't going to get done. Right? It's got to be God. So, I, you know, I, I totally am with you on the, the, the prime importance of prayer. We have to pray because only God can do the impossible, re regenerate the heart. At the same time, like you, but there are commands, you know? So there, God doesn't just do it by kind of turning on a light. He uses means, means to his ends. We're the means of bringing the gospel, Romans 10, right? Okay, so I saw a number of hands. Keep those hands up. Let me see, because I can't remember. So who was first? No, <laughs> let's, let's start it. Let's go to this side over here, Wayne. Alyssa was first. For the was she? Yes. Okay. She, yeah. Go ahead, Alyssa. I didn't know okay. that. All right. <laughs> so now I'm awkward. Um, yeah, now you're awkward? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to come back to you? or? <laughs> I think you were hitting on a lot of what I was going to say, but we are called to be ready to give an answer. And when we have to explain to somebody why we believe something, it it reveals what we really believe. Because either we're able to explain it or we're not. And so we need to study. We need to be ready to give those answers. But we also need to realize that it's as long as we're being faithful in obeying God and believing what he says is true, it's not our responsibility what they do with that information, and we shouldn't engage in an argument with them. Okay, good. Yeah, thank but you. I think it's a balance of those yeah. two things, and of course prayer. But Yeah, we, we actually raised this way back in the murky past uh, about why we do this task of apologetics, and a lot of it had to do with its strengthening effect on us. As we go up against unbelieving worldviews and have to defend the faith, causes us to have to go study to see why do we believe what we believe again? Oh, yeah. Or, boy, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. That has a massive strength. All those theistic proofs for the existence of God, they bolster our faith, don't they? I mean, regardless of what they do to the unbeliever, they strengthen us. It's a good thing. 
So now, Wayne, would you like to go? It, yeah. So I have never had a gospel conversation with anybody where they accepted the presuppositional basis without even a single question, right? There, there's almost always going to be a handful of questions, the what-if objections, the, um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that you should necessarily get dragged onto their foundation, right? Your, your objection or, or objective is to turn it back to um, the, the basis of the gospel as rooted in the scripture. However, we are also commanded to be ready to give a defense, Right, and that, that be ready to give a defense is because of the acknowledgement that the human mind is going to ask about human things. So we have to be able to address them even if our intent is to get them back to that presuppositional basis of the gospel. Good, yeah. So maybe a way if I was to shorten that down is, is to say that God uses means, us, to bring the gospel. Prayer, gospel, Defending the faith, explaining the faith, answering the unbelievers' questions, helping them to examine their presuppositions, helping them to see the flaws in their worldview, uh, and all that. I, I would I would add one more note. Um, mm -hmm. You know, from learning with Russ Brewer on the Front Range Bible Fellowship, one of the points that he made that I really hadn't sat down and thought, but it, it makes sense when you think about it. He really encouraged everyone in the evangelism and apologetics class to go through a series of questions about what you think about God, right? It's one thing to know the verses, but people expect a genuine experience, your ability to talk to your own experience about how you've experienced God's attributes yeah. in your life. Yeah, that's good. It's, um, some will call it the power of personal testimony. Yeah, yeah. it's good, it's a, it's a good part of it. Uh, I see your hand, Maggie, let's come real quick. Yeah, go to Karen and then Chuck and then Maggie. Yeah. Karen first. Well, Romans ten fourteen. How will then how then will they call on him from whom they have not believed, or how are they to believe in him from whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So at the right. very basic, you know, they need to hear before they can believe. Believe. Them's our marching orders, right? <coughs> yeah, good. Thank you. Romans 10. Uh, Chuck. It seems to me, just from the comments I've heard, there we're balancing the two two things. One is the call, <coughs> excuse me, not the call, but to the command to evangelize. And then the other is the Romans 116, that an understanding of the power of God is the gospel for salvation. Right those two things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, I think also what we need to do, and this is our second point, we need to clarify the apologetic task. So what are we doing actually when we're trying to do apologetics? Yeah, Maggie. Oh, I was just going to say that I think when we think about our testimonies um, in coming to know the Lord and know about him, we put feet on that and we're saying, well, that person told me about the truth, about the gospel. And that was an act of God. I mean, that was what God was doing in my life. Um, hmm. And so I think the hindsight part, we're recognizing the power of God in our past that we didn't, at that time, see. Mm -hmm. So. 
So you're what you're saying. What what are you saying then about? You're saying to just to use personal testimony right. and they, and to to bring before the unbeliever you're talking to the elements of the gospel to show them that just like this conversation now, there was once a conversation like this in my life. Right. And, that was, and it was God. And that's what God was doing. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't anything that we're making up. Or... Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I, and, and I think so as a segue into kind of our next point about the apologetic task, what you're doing when you are framing it that way, Maggie, and this is, I, I commend this, that we need to speak, think, reason, argue, explain in a distinctively Christian way. That is, you're right, that we're not, we're not kind of going back 20 years and saying, okay, let me reason to you in, in all the, un, you know, the, the unclarity that I had then. And, and how I stumbled through everything. No, we are we are a modern interpreter of that past event, with a with with a mature theology that helps to explain that and to drive it home to an unbeliever. Um, and so that is to say, we are we are interpreters of that experience. We're not leaving that experience to stand for itself. We're driving home the points. Why? Because we have an agenda. <laughs> the agenda is to preach the gospel. So we want our testimony not to just be like, you know, some, some vague notions of spirituality and awakening, but rather God is holy. And I came to recognize God is holy because I saw his law and I saw myself in contrast to the law. Here's what I actually broke. Here's how I was living in, con in, in contrast to God's morality. I was living that way and I was, in, I was in, under sin and judgment and wrath and I faced an eternal hell. And I started to become aware of that. And then God introduced me through the gospel to Jesus Christ, the perfect one who ransomed me from death by his work on the cross. You know, so we just walked through the gospel. And even though we would have never said that 20 years ago that way, because we didn't have the theology to explain it, we think and reason and speak and even share our personal testimony as mature Christians. Because I think in the moment we're, we're thinking that we're coming up with something. We're... We're discovering truth, but looking back, we didn't discover much. God is working yeah. on our hearts at that moment. Yeah. Changing, so. That's right. Good. Thank you. So we've um, understood some more about the unbelieving mind. There's going to be plenty of this to, to unpack in the future. We've uh, talked about the antithesis between the believing and the unbelieving use of reason. Now let's try to understand the nature of the apologetic task a bit more clearly. So this is number two, the nature of the apologetic task. Um, first, we were asking the question, so, so are we at an impasse? What do we do when our reason and the unbeliever's reason are in totally different tracks? Ours is, on, ours is anchored into faith and reasons from a foundation of faith. The unbeliever reasons out of his unbelief. Are we then at an impasse? Are we talking past each other and all that? No. And um, we'll, we'll kind of unpack this as best we can, not just tonight, but next week as well. So, so first, we, we know that we can and that we must engage the unbeliever's reason. If for no other reason, then as Scott said, the Bible commands us to make a defense. 1 Peter 3.15, right? When we look for examples in the Bible... 
we find some really helpful descriptions recorded in the book of Acts. If you would just turn real quickly to Acts 17. And joining Paul here in Acts 17 on his second missionary journey. Paul's first missionary journey was predominantly in southern Galatia, which is southern Asia Minor. And it's an area that had a very strong Jewish presence and influence. And that's why we find uh, the letter to the Galatians dealing with the Judaizer problem. And that was more common in areas, areas with a higher concentration, influence of Jews, Jewish theology. But when he went on the second missionary journey, remember, he wanted to turn eastward and go back into that region. And the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to go west. So he got that Macedonian call, remember? So he went to Philippi and then Thessalonica and then Berea. That took him into Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking territory that left a lot of Judaism and Judaizing thinking behind. So he had to now deal with Greek thinking. This is helpful for us because we're all, you know, the offspring of Greek, Greco-Roman thinking. So... After Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Paul went down to Athens and in Greece. Acts 17, 2, look at it there. It says he entered the city and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. By the way, notice the starting point for his thinking from the scriptures, right? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He never set aside God's word. No matter whose reasoning he was engaging, Acts 17, 17, look at it. He repeats the point and then expands the scope. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. At some point, if Lord willing, if we have time, I'll go through Acts 17, that whole sermon of Paul's uh, there on Mars Hill. Can we get there in about 20 years with the way we're going through Luke? You said it was going to be Luke and then Acts. <laughs> Alyssa. Now is yeah. Are you feeling awkward? No. no. <laughs> See, you feel awkward at all the wrong moments. <laughs> Look at Acts eighteen one, Alyssa. Oh, I appreciate Alyssa a lot. So. You know, what is that commandment that says, thou shalt not lie? <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is enough of this tomfoolery. Let's move on. So Paul, Paul left Athens, right? In, in Acts 18.1, he went into Corinth. We find he took the same approach. It says in verse 4, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, we've said God does the persuading by his Holy Spirit, but that does not stop us from being part of that means to that end, does it? We try to persuade men. Flip the page to Acts 19. Find the same pattern in Ephesus. Acts 19, 8-9 says Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In response to some distracting opposition, Paul eventually withdrew from them. He took the disciples with them, uh, or with him, and he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So again, if we're ob obedient to the, the stated command of Scripture to make a defense, and if we're following Paul's example to be reasoning with unbelievers, how do we do that? What is uh, our apologetic? 
Now go back to 1 Corinthians 1, okay? Because uh, here in 1 Corinthians 1, we find the apologetic task explained. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we were there already, but it says, The word of the cross is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That term, wisdom of the world, encompasses every non-Christian worldview. All of it is the wisdom of the world. Every non-Christian worldview is right there. And God has made it foolish. If you get the sense here in 1 Corinthians 1 that Paul is basically taunting the wise, the scribes, the debaters of this age. And by the way, this is an age that's much closer than ours is to Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's taunting them. In our evangelism, in our defense of the faith, we must be distinctly and unapologetically Christian. Cornelius Van Til he gives us this definition of apologetics. He says, quote, apologetics is the vindication of, Christ, of the Christian, <laughs> the Christian, I like that. Um, I'm going to preach it that way one day. That sounds good. So, no, it doesn't. Lee's laughing at me. Okay, so here, here I'm going to start over. <laughs> Van Til, definition of apologetics. Quote, the Christian. <laughs> You're with me. It still sounds good, doesn't it? Christian. Uh, back on track. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. Okay? I'll repeat that. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the, the singular, non-Christian philosophy of life. In other words, it's the word of the cross versus the wisdom of this age. And the wisdom of this age, as, as Van Til is pointing out, has various forms, but it's all the same lie. It's all the same stuff. This is pretty simple. And 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 no, it feels complex. We've used a lot of big words and all that stuff, but it really is simple. As long as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, fixed on His truth, this is a simple thing. And that's what Paul's saying. He's not only unintimidated by the non-Christian opposition to his worldview, but he's basically saying, "Bring it on! Bring it!" He's challenging the unbeliever to put his non-Christian worldview up against the Christian worldview. Why? Because verse 25, as it says there, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He feels no sense of intimidation. In fact, he knows that when he brings it, that the unbeliever's arguments melt away. So why is Paul so confident? Turn the page to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6. He says this, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart 
a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And by that, he doesn't mean esoteric. He's not, this is not some Gnostic view of, you know, if you get through the levels, we'll unlock new doors into knowledge and you get to the secret hidden wisdom of God. That's not what he's saying. The, the wisdom of God he's talking about is what was hidden in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in the New. So everything about Christ and the church and, and all the things that are revealed and written in the New Testament, that's what he's talking about. Secret and hidden wisdom now revealed. So he says, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, verse 7, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So all these smart guys, all Marcus Aurelius, all these intelligent emperors, go back, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, go back, go back and all these, I mean, Alexander the Great, right? He was tutored by Aristotle. So all these guys, they are not, um, what's it in Princess Bride? Moranth. Moranth, right? <laughs> They're all morons. God is saying none of the rulers of this age understood any of this wisdom. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. That is proof positive that their wisdom is actually folly. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That right there often is taken to say, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard. That's, you know, we're talking about heaven. Certainly heaven's contained in that, but it's talking about the full manifold wisdom of God that's revealed now in the New Testament that the apostles wrote down. So get this in verse 10, second half of the verse. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we know God to be infinite, eternal. Is there any end to God? No, but the Spirit goes where no one can go. Who knows, verse 11, the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. And in the same way, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might, not, might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul sees his task as an apostle. And he sees all really Christian ministers doing this very thing. We're taking those things that are revealed by the Spirit of God, written here, revealed in the New Testament, and we're joining them together. That's what interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The term is talking about joining together. Those things from the Spirit, joining them with spiritual people. Joining them with Christians. So that Christians see their God and behold their God. That's the task of the Christian minister. That's the task of... Paul the Apostle. Now, having said that, we need to stop and realize, recognize the value, the significance of what we have received from God in the gospel. This is no small matter. It is, 1 Corinthians 1.30 again, nothing less than wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we come to understand how powerful the wisdom of God is, how mighty, how strong, how logically consistent, how internally coherent, connected this wisdom is in contrast to every single unbelieving worldview, will we become bold? 
We become confident. We become ready for any challenge. As Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We actually boast in the Lord and in his truth. That's the spirit and the attitude by which we enter into this task of apologetics and evangelism. We know the wisdom we have from God. They don't. They scoff at it because they're foolish. Because their wisdom led to crucify the Lord of glory. So it's foolishness.